It's Tuesday the 22nd of September and you're very welcome to Westminster Watch. I'm Dermot Hudson from the Department of Politics at Birkbeck and I'm joined by my colleague Ben Worthy. In this podcast our aim is to look at issues in contemporary British politics that interest us and that we think um, should be of interest to students of British politics and it's aimed in particular at those taking our undergraduate module at Birkbeck, Contemporary British Politics. And so we're going to look at a couple of issues this week. One obvious but nonetheless important and the other less obvious but we still think um, interesting. So let me hand over to Ben to introduce our first topic. So uh, this week we're going to start by discussing Jez We Can and the very expected election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. Now if we wind back to when the very long leadership campaign began he was on there just to get a few left-wing views into the debate and some of the MPs who supported him actually didn't support him but did it just to open up the discussion and now um, lots of people's hopes and a few people's nightmares have come true and Jeremy Corbyn 30 years as a backbench MP and and the second most serial rebel in his own party uh, is now the leader so what have we seen in the last seven eight days as leader he's a very different sort of leader Um, we know that he's got plenty of enemies we've seen that he's got enemies of course in the press the conservatives of course who could hardly conceal their glee. And most interestingly, he seems to have a number of very unhappy people in the Parliamentary Labour Party. And it seems that there's been a few obstacles and traps laid for him this week over poppies and the singing of the National Anthem. Um, but one thing to be sure, the idea that the two parties are too close together for you to tell the difference has definitely ended. So, I mean, this was the beginning of a new way of electing uh, Labour leaders, but could you set the scene a bit? Well, this is... Uh, the story goes that it was Ed Miliband under pressure two years ago um, and under a lot of criticism decided to change the way in which Labour leaders uh, were elected there was controversy of course about the role of the trade unions in electing leaders particularly uh, as it related to Ed Miliband's election in 2010 when he just narrowly beat his brother and so the new idea borrowed from France was to crowdsource the uh, leadership And so not just members of the Labour Party, members of the Parliamentary Labour Party, but people called affiliates who could become affiliates for £3 could also get a vote. One of the interesting things, of course, is that Corbyn did not just win because of these affiliates who came in, but he won across the board, across all of the votes, and considerably so amongst actual members of the Labour Party. But this has been the part that's got the attention and the part that's given Corbyn the sense of being part of a sort of movement, if you like. I mean, you mentioned France. Do you have a sense of whether this is a one-off in terms of this kind of exogenous shock to hit the Labour Party? Or is there, I mean, as a political scientist, how do we, what do we look for here, apart from just the extraordinary kind of political roller coaster of seeing this man, you know, unexpectedly in charge of one of the great parties of the country? Well, I'll quote Matthew Flinders, who's written a very, very interesting article about the impact of the last uh, general election. And he talks about the fact that we don't live in an age of anti-politics. We don't have groups and parties in Britain who are against politics. What we have is people who are anti-establishment, whether you want to look at UKIP, the SNP, and now, to an extent, the Labour Party. What you have are groups of people who want to do politics in a different sort of way. They're anti-establishment and against conventional groups, and they're coming from all sorts of directions. So what we seem to be living in, and uh, you know more about this than me, and it seems to be across Europe as well, is we're watching these kind of anti-establishment insurgencies 
take place, of which Syriza in Greece may also be another example of these bottom-up kind of campaigns against established political parties and institutions. I mean, this seems to me to fit Greece reasonably well, right? You had the main parties knocked out by their own economic incompetence once the global financial crisis hits. They preside over what is essentially a public deception about the true state of public borrowing in in those countries. You then get already high debt levels leading to a major fiscal crisis and their reputation is understandably ruined. Although some of those parties seem to do reasonably well um, in the recent election. But Syriza is there as the kind of alternative to that discredited establishment. But there we're talking about part, a party that's won, now won twice in one year yeah. in general elections. But you know what we're really talking about here is a political phenomenon that within, that's within the Labour Party. I mean, Labour hasn't won anything yet, and a lot of people don't think they'll win anything. I mean, who knows? It's a very difficult environment in which to make predictions. But this is really about, you know, Labour making choices about how it's governed. And for me, what's really fascinating about this is whether they really got what they intended out of this and whether this is not a nice example of what political scientists would call unintended consequences, one of the concepts associated with historical institutionalism. I mean, Ed Miliband has been in Australia... um, for the duration of this leadership campaign and I think understandably so because he's been asked to explain what he had in mind when making this choice and it seemed to me I guess as an institutionalist that this was about the confluence of um, you know political scandals that forced certain institutional changes and those institutional changes having unpredictable and some would say undesirable consequences. So I guess the first one you've talked about, which is the opening up of these, you know, these leadership rules and allowing a much broader um, you know, electorate really to have a say over who governs the Labour Party. That was supposed to have taken place within the parameters of a kind of agenda setting role within the Labour Party, right? Where uh, MPs were supposed to decide who yeah. should go on the ticket. Yeah. Um, and Corbyn keep saying that with a few seconds to go he managed to you know get enough support uh, symbolic support for him to go yeah. on the on the ticket and uh, so I guess you know my reaction to this is that this looks like institutions having a life of their own and did anyone truly choose Corbyn as leader I'll I'll, I'll, I'll take your Ed Miliband and I'll raise you a Tony Blair because one of the other ways of looking at this and I do think it's unintended consequences and you've got to be very careful when you design a, a, an institution remember that the Scottish Parliament uh, voting system was specifically designed to ensure no party could ever have a majority it was almost, almost impossible to have a majority in the Scottish Parliament and look what we've got look what we're properly heading for again in 2016 so I think unintended consequences is, is one of the big stories of British politics over the last 20, 30 years. Um, again, another example is, of course, the promise for a referendum. The, I think it's two things. Though. On the one hand, it's the, the kind of structures, but also it's about the way that the Labour Party in British politics has been governed. There's an increasing sense, and one of the things that's fueling this insurgency is the fact that elites are governing in their own interests, and people are feeling more and more remote from the political system that serves them. So it's a combination of Ed Miliband made these new rules, but the kind of consequence of the Labour Party being run 
from the top by a small group of people from 1994 onwards by Tony Blair which kind of the fuel that, that made it happen as well so there's a, a combination of the kind of institutional rules being changed and this sort of culture and, and, and particular way of running things because the kind of agency meets structure yeah. story and um, you know agency taking decisions that perhaps it doesn't you know fully understand but that perhaps that in a way incomplete understanding is premised on these structural factors that we're in a very um, uh, complicated political environment and Peter Mayer Late Peter Murray has written extensively about political parties in Europe, and I think he's a key read in all of this. He talks about the idea of cartel parties, that yeah. these are parties that are set up to serve the greater good and eventually serve their own interests. And I think that that's, um, you know, that rings very true when we think about political organisations. And Okay, so let's move on to the second topic of the week, which is, I mean, much more niche, really, and much more specialised, but I think it's kind of worth kind of just reflecting upon. So what we saw this week was that Robert Schultz was appointed for a second term as head of the Office of Budgetary Responsibility. Now, what is this Office of Budgetary Responsibility? It doesn't exactly make the headlines, not even in the Financial Times, but I think it's an intriguing part of um, of, of the kind of changing approaches to uh, governance in the UK. So this body was set up in 2010, formalised under um, various laws in 2011, and it was set up as a kind of fiscal watchdog designed to oversee, in a very tentative way, decisions relating to fiscal policy. That is, decisions relating to expenditure, uh, taxation and borrowing. And what was the context here? You have seen a gradual, what Flinders and Buller call, uh, a depoliticization of economic policy in this country since, uh, well, certainly since John Major's time, where you gradually saw the introduction of rules to try and uh, clarify what economic policy making was trying to achieve. You saw a degree of autonomy uh, um, um, assigned to the Bank of England. This, of course, intensified under New Labour, where you saw the Bank of England given independence within the first week of New Labour being in office. This was this great radical transformation. You also saw Gordon Brown adopt a set of fiscal rules designed to tie his hands. Always paradoxical, right? You have this great Iron Chancellor who presides over the most powerful treasury in modern memory and yet he's saying you know i'm so you know for you know i have so much foresight as a politician i'm going to tie my own hands with rules and it doesn't totally make sense politically and it didn't make sense politically because um, what we saw with gordon brown he was very prudent in his first few years and then we saw a gradual relaxation of fiscal policy uh, and this was done by exploiting the wiggle room in these fiscal rules. These rules measured government borrowing over the economic cycle, which is kind of a technical way of saying, on average, over a few years. Mm-hmm. And that left room for interpretation, and that interpretation allowed room for economics as well as politics. So the coalition comes to power in 2010, has a, um, a new set of fiscal rules, but its key distinctive contribution to economic governance was to say that we're going to create a new institution that's going to oversee the enforcement of these fiscal rules to try and bring more credibility to this. Now, did they just do away with the paradox of power that was underpinning uh, Gordon Brown's fiscal rules? Of course not. They just didn't give very much power to this new institution. It's 20 people in an anonymous office on Victoria Street. There's around 90 full-time, 19 full-time members uh, working. That's very small compared to the hundreds of people working in the Treasury. And... Um, 
Nonetheless, this Office for Budgetary Responsibility was given a pretty clearly defined role. It was given the role of preparing economic forecasts. It was given a role in assessing the extent to which the government's fiscal rules had been met, among other things. Um, it's been quietly there in the background. We've had a few spats between the head of this uh, Office for Budgetary Responsibility and the Chancellor and the Prime Minister um, over the years. Um, but clearly there's enough harmony in this relationship to see the appointment of, of Robert Chote for a second term. Now, why is this interesting? Well, it's interesting for me as a governance scholar um, on a number of levels. Firstly, the fact that he is allowed to be reappointed is itself significant because it speaks to a limitation mm. on political independence. You know, if it's truly independent uh, or it aspires to credibility, why would you have a second term? Because once you have a second term, you have a stronger incentive to try and keep on side with the political powers that be. Um, so that was interesting for me. Um, another thing that was interesting for me is the fact that uh, some kind of juicy details came out during the week about the relationship between this Office for Budgetary Responsibility and the government. And um, the Times ran a story that said that there was, in so many words, quiet pressure being applied to the Office for Budgetary Responsibility to choose their language carefully when it came to drafting the reports um, that their tasks were preparing. And there was a lot of fuss made over the word roller coaster uh, during the week. And uh, it turned out that the Office for Budgetary Responsibility had used the term roller coaster to describe the scenario that lay ahead for public services with this new wave of austerity that Osborne had planned. And it turned out that government officials had put some pressure on um, Robert Choate and colleagues to try and reconsider the choice of that phrase. They resisted it, is my understanding. But if you look at the Chancellor's budget statement um, from the middle of this year, there's a very um, careful use of the phrase roller coaster um, in that speech that says, and we're doing this fiscal adjustment and none of it means a roller coaster. It just shows how thin skinned the Treasury is mm. when they're worried about these 19 people sitting in Victoria yeah. Street um, telling them what to do. And, and Robert Choate argued that. We're open to, to drafting advice, but we're ultimately the ones that write the report. And for, so for me, this speaks to the tension between the need for credibility, but the overriding urge to centralise power in all things political in this country, but particularly economic policy. Well, I mean, it kind of goes back to, to the discussion about you create something and then suddenly it kind of develops a, a dynamic of its own sometimes. I mean, this is only 20 people who are essential job is to look over the government's books, which are vast and, and complex. And yet, what's interesting is the Treasury is worried enough to email them and to ask them, partly because they know that a word like roller coaster is something that people can grasp, that people can understand easily and that can very easily sit on, on headlines. And, and I think, like you say, it's very interesting that they are that worried and, and concerned. And it's also perhaps a, an interesting illustration of how how many different bodies there are now looking at different aspects of what government does. And yet, despite the fact that powers flowing to all these new bodies and the Westminster model, as it used to be envisioned, really no longer exists, there's still a sense in the central government that they need to control everything. Right, and there's a kind of um, artificiality to these institutions. Yeah. I mean, I would, you know, I, 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 would, I guess I would challenge the idea maybe that this is about unintended consequences for me this is very kind of hyper rational institutional mm. design in other words they know they you know the government knows that it, that it, it needs to respond to concerns over its credibility 
Or, I mean, it's also a kind of partisan element to this. They know that by responding to those concerns over their credibility, they can kind of rub it in to yeah. the other guys, you know, uh, you know, bang on this message that a new Labour um, were nowhere near as fiscal, fiscally prudent yeah. as they claimed, which I think is partly true, but also partly unfair, mm-hmm. but powerfully as a uh, powerful political message. Yeah. So they create this institution in part to address concerns over credibility with the financial markets, but also to make a partisan point but they're not crazy enough to genuinely give away power. (laughs) So, you know, if they were really serious about this, they could have uh, made a very powerful institution. There's been two reports um, prepared um, over the last 12 months or so. One was by a Treasury official called Dave Ramston, and the other was by a Canadian academic uh, called, um, his last name is Page. And I was very interested to learn about some of the findings in this report. In the Page report on this Office for British Responsibility, they said that yes, the you know this institution gets by with um, the activities of its core staff of nineteen employees. That's what we all know. But it also, in in carrying out its functions, draws on approximately one hundred and twenty five full time equivalent employees from other government agencies, mm. and that solves a puzzle for me, which is you can't do this kind of fiscal policy analysis with twenty people. Uh. You know, you need big numbers, and they clearly do if they're drawing on those resources. But the fact that those resources clearly come in a very constrained and incremental way, uh, not through the creation of full-time posts in this institution, but through lending officials, right? It, it speaks volumes to me because it shows that this government is uh, keen to do something about this problem, but very, very keen to centralise power in the hands of the Treasury nonetheless. The Ramsden report um, issued some recommendations. And the most interesting recommendation for me was the fact that the Office for Budgetary Responsibility should receive a multi-year budget on a rolling basis. Now, that sounds like a technical point, but it's clearly not, because it shows that the budget must be on an annual basis. And when you have budgets on an annual basis, that is a kind of tried and trusted way to politicise governance. We saw this in the European Union for years, where there was an annual circus over uh, the sums that the European Union would spend. This created... Uh, huge political controversies and made it very difficult for the EU to act and that was kind of the point mm. and it was only in the early 1980s that you saw a move towards these so-called multi-annual budgets clunky phrase but what it really says is that we try and deal with these financial issues uh, a few in, you know for a few years at a time and then in the meantime get on with the job of governing so I, I was really struck by that recommendation because it was saying in so many words that the Office for Budgetary Responsibility does not have the degree of financial inter- financial independence that you associate with something like a central bank. Um, and I guess maybe to kind of bring this discussion to a circle, I was really struck by Corbyn's, at this stage, tentative economic proposals. But one of them was for what he's called the people's quantitative easing. Mm. And we don't really know what that means yet. But I guess my initial reaction to it is that it looks a lot like repoliticizing the Bank of England. You know, yeah. at the moment, the Bank of England has got... Um, you know, a degree of operational independence. It's given responsibility for uh, setting interest rates with a view to achieving uh, low inflation and contributing to the other economic objectives of the government. But it has operational independence. So it falls to this monetary policy committee to decide on economic policy on the basis of this fairly clear inflation target. Why? Because when economic policy was politicised, you've got things like political business cycles, interest rates following the path of elections rather than the economy. And so you saw the creation of the Bank of England to try and have that degree of independence. 
Corbyn's economics comes from that earlier age when you had that political um, contestation over something that we think of as quite technical, like yeah. interest rates. Although interesting that Mark Carney's obviously uh, seems to have decided which side he's on in this debate. Um, because I think he spoke out, or at least dropped a heavy hint against uh, Corbyn's ideas. I suppose just a final reflection is, is this tells us how interesting it's become in terms of governments being scrutinised and held to account. Because what you have here is a story of a, uh, a newspaper using the Freedom of Information Act, revealing something, and then a select committee in Parliament, then taking up the issue, not with the government itself, but with the body who's designed to watch government. And what we're seeing over the past... 20, 30 years is a proliferation of these different, um, what somebody called political observatories in different bodies who are watching different aspects of what government does and, and, and make government's life sometimes at least uncomfortable in some ways. Great. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more Westminster Watch soon. <laughs>